You're watching The Sports Objective, the podcast for pirates. You're listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on The Sports Objective. Join Coach C, a USA Strength and Conditioning Hall of Famer, every Monday night to see in a variety of guests, including former players, former and current coaches, pastors, and others will discuss relevant issues in coaching today's athlete. The goal of equipping the athlete and those coaching them with the physical, mental, and spiritual armor necessary to live their best life. Here's Coach Connors. Welcome to Absolute Empowerment. Uh, Tonight we have Dr. Samuel Sears, who is a professor in the Departments of Psychology and Cardiovascular Sciences at East Carolina University, also the Associate Director of ECU Cardiology Fellowship has been a recipient of the O. Max Gardner Award, which is presented by the Board of Governors UNC system uh, for the individual within the system who contributes to the greatest or or has the greatest contribution to the welfare of the human race. Uh, So uh, very happy to have you on, Dr. Sears. And you also played receiver for the Florida Gators, correct? Yes, sir. A long time ago, but I have that football background for sure. It still hangs around. Well, Dr. Sears, I'm going to let you maybe talk a little bit about uh, what you specifically do, what your level of expertise is in relationship to the fact that you are world-renowned in that area. Well, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, so I'm a professor here at East Carolina, but my uh, practice is in cardiac psychology. So I study uh, and take care of patients who have experienced sudden cardiac arrest and uh, patients that receive implantable defibrillators. Uh, In in addition, I take care of patients with various kinds of arrhythmias and heart failure and specifically look at the quality of life and psychological implications of having near-death experiences, essentially, where uh, heart disease puts our puts my patients in great harm, potentially life-threatening situations. And we use technologies like implantable defibrillators, like pacemakers to try to restore their life fully so that they go live life and then have the backup protection of a defibrillator. So what's unique and most unique about my work is that here at East Carolina, we're focused on the psychology of, of recovery from disease. So most people think about psychologists as focused on mental illness. And while we can do that, we're particularly focused on the mental dynamics, the challenges that go along with just normal disease and how people recover from disease. So we've got a very special thing here at East Carolina, uh, you know, just a handful of uh, universities around the country that are particularly focused in this way on the psychology of disease and recovery. Well, when I listened to you speak one time, uh, I couldn't take pictures of the slides quick enough because it was so uh, insightful and meaningful and that's what gave me the idea to, to bring you on because I want to talk a little bit about some things regarding athletics, regarding coaches. Yeah. Uh, you know, this mental health issue now has come to the forefront uh, in many ways uh, with many populations now uh, in athletics. And uh, also having been a collegiate coach myself for over 30 years, I've experienced this firsthand. And so the first thing that I really want to talk about to, to get your insight uh, and, of course, your expert opinion is the impact of stress 
uh, and basically the impact of stress on a coach's mental health. And I just want to mention a few things there with regard to my experience and the uh, what I observed through my career is that, you know, you, you try to stay employed. And of course, the only way you stay employed is through winning. And then you have to count on young athletes that are 20 years old to get that done for you because you can't go on the field uh, for them uh, and play the game. Uh, you may have to move your family at any time. Uh, you basically are working off usually a, a one-year contract. I know in my case, and a lot of strength coaches, uh, but that, that has changed for the better over the years. Uh, but uh, winning or losing is, you know, basically dictates your destiny. You could get left behind if a coach was very successful and decided to go somewhere else. Uh, so you could lose your job that way as well. Uh, someone can come in and either retain you or not retain you. Uh, in addition to that, you have very long hours. You have, in my case, pretty much not much family time because it was about a 12-hour day working weekends. And then also in the summers, I didn't really have a chance for vacation because I had to team through the summer as well. But uh, So just looking at all these factors with collegiate football coaches specifically is what we want to talk about. A uh, little bit of insight there as far as how that stress could be magnified and then manifested in certain ways and and, uh, and what could be done possibly to help that situation? Well, I think this is a complex problem uh, because the job does dictate many of the factors that you described. But let's first start thinking about the idea of what is health anyway. What do we mean by how stress affects health? So health psychologists have an idea called the biopsychosocial theory of health, which is consistent with a post-World War II definition from the, World, from the World Health Organization that basically defines health as biologic health, psychologic health, and social health. So the fact that stress has a direct effect on psychologic functioning is obvious. That's the easy one. That is when we put human beings in situations uh, where they have high demands and low control over the outcome with high stakes, the mental health wear and tear is obvious. And that's exactly what you described. Essentially, coaches um, experience a low degree of control over the outcome um, and high demands in terms of workload and work stress. And the consequences for themselves and their families are unlike any job I can really think of. So the mental health uh, health effects are obvious. Now, what about physical health? How does, how does coaching affect that? Well, first off, when we think about how stress affects our bodies, of course we recognize that there are direct effects between stress and the physiology of our bodies. But the easiest way to describe that is that when people are under stress, they just don't take very good care of themselves. They have less activity and exercise. They have less sleep. Their nutrition changes. Their emotional regulation changes. All of those things do affect the physiology of our bodies. So it's, a, it's really simple, right? I mean, it's a Captain Obvious kind of answer in a way. But I think the challenge then becomes, who are these people that also become coaches? Well, one of the things is that we do have data 
about what happens to American football players. And that's something we want to get into. But many coaches are simply former football players because we don't have data. I mean, no one's ever done a study looking at the true health of coaches. I'm not sure they'd be willing to be studied the degree of scrutiny their lives have already. But there is some data about that. So I'd be happy to get into that. But in particular, you know, this idea that stress affects our health because it changes our actions and it changes our physiology and it changes our psychology. And further, we kind of disengage when all that's going on. We pull back from our social. You know, you didn't have the same support as your of your family when you never see them. When you're going to even have an opportunity to disclose what you're thinking and feeling if you're working as many hours as coaching uh, demands. And coaches are pretty well recognized. So it's not like you can hide. Right. So there's a lot. There's a, I mean, the whole, the whole context of coaching is one that's ripe for the occupational effects on one's health. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot with uh, the coaches that I've been acquainted with. And, I'm, of course, I'm not going to mention any names, but I, I do know some coaches who have been on meds for depression and uh, some coaches who maybe thought that they would like to see a therapist, but yeah, that, that would make them soft or make them weak. And uh, if someone found out, God forbid. Uh, so, uh, Well, just before we came on, Jeff, uh, tonight, uh, Shane Beamer, the head coach of South Carolina, uh, was found to have a broken foot today. And, uh, well, you say, well, that's too bad, right? Well, how'd he get that broken foot? Well, after the loss to Florida on Saturday, apparently he kicked the wall. When the adrenaline wore, wore, wore off, he, in fact, did fracture his foot. But I do want to read exactly what he said, because I think it's relevant. He says, uh, yeah, I kicked the foot and he said, I was really upset Saturday night because I didn't do enough to help them get over the hump and win the football game. I don't think I have to have surgery. I don't think I have to have surgery, but there is a broken bone in my foot. It hurts like you know what, but I got to show toughness and I got to fight through it. It's been one of those years. So here's, <laughs> you know, here's, here's a coach, just random current event today. Here's a coach describing the very thing we're talking about in this case regulating emotions, being frustrated about the outcome, acknowledging that he had little control over that. In fact, I, I watched the press conference. Um, and, and then here it is. He's actually, in this case, has an actual physical impairment from, from kicking the wall or whatever happened, right? It, it's, right? it's not to single him out, but to simply show that, that the frustration associated with coaching has an impact on people. These are humans. Coaches are human beings. And, uh, you know, someone threatening your job every day, there aren't, there aren't many jobs like that where, you know, there's a call-in show saying, boy, that professor gave one bad lecture this week. I mean, we got to get rid of that guy. You know, he's just not a very good professor. I couldn't imagine if that happened. Boy, there'd be a lot of unemployed professors probably after some boring lectures. But, uh, you know, those are the challenges. I, you know, the, the, the upside is being a coach has a lot of fun. It has, a, it has meaningful work. So it's not that they're just simply victims. They're meaningful work. They're demonstrating coping with adversity every day throughout games, throughout training. I mean, that's part of your job, too, as a strength coach has been to be able to say that pain is good, that becoming stronger takes effort. And it takes a daily empowerment, as this as this podcast says. 
So empowering people to be the best they can be is among the most exciting jobs you can have. Running on to, you know, they also they don't let professors run on the field with 50,000 fans cheering them on either. You know, running through the purple haze. I wish they did before my lectures. If I could run out and and have, uh, you know, Steve the Pirate out there and then I'd come out behind him, I'd love that. But but the, but the costs are real. And I think that that's yeah. – I applaud you for this podcast because I think coaching does have great ups. But the demands and the chronicity of the stress is worrisome. Yeah, I mean, it's risk-reward. Uh, you know, no doubt about that. I mean, you know what you're getting yourself into. Uh, but at the same time, your wife might might not know it at that time. Uh, when you marry her, what she's getting herself into. So <laughs> that's all right. Uh, there's got to be some clarity there or you're going to run into some issues because, uh, you know, you're not going to be home a lot. But uh, – I was very fortunate and that, you know, qualified for a lot of bowls with the teams and got to take my family on the bowl trips. And that was a great experience for them. You know, my wife and my kids and also my parents and whoever else wanted to tag along. So, uh, so, you know, there's, there's some great things as well on the upside. Uh, so I wanted to ask you like specifically with regard to this, uh, getting into the parasympathetic state is huge right now. Uh, you hear this all the time. So uh, someone comes to you, uh, hey, Dr. Sears, I, you know, I'm not feeling too good mentally. Uh, I feel depressed, whatever. Uh, or I, I've got anxiety. I can't calm down. Uh, you know, as a coach, wh- which direction do you coach? Th- which direction do you, you counsel them? Do you, you want them to go into the parasympathetic state or uh, – or uh, is it fight or flight? Do you fight or do you flight? Well, these are tough questions. I mean, I think from the standpoint of, uh, I would say what's bothering them the most first. Usually, depression is going to be a little a little tougher to treat than anxiety. Often, we can make pretty quick improvement on anxiety by simply teaching someone how to activate the parasympathetic system, right? So helping people learn how to relax, deep breathe, uh, helping people exercise and try to burn off some of the adrenaline and some of the stress, helping people recognize some of the ways they're thinking, the patterns of thinking that are keeping them stirred up. And I think helping them to recognize that um, they need support in doing that and and often talking about and approaching some of the things that are making them anxious, like I'm going to lose my job. Well, let's talk about that. If you do lose your job, what do, what what are you going to do? How are we going to work through this as opposed to I don't want to tell my family we may get fired. You know, I think talking about things does help deal with anxiety on the depression side. Of course, it can be much more complicated. Anxiety can, too. But but in particular, depression, um, more um, significant depression. Again, here we have to really get at getting people engaged again. Depression's a withdrawal disease as well. So there's a tendency to kind of withdraw, to sleep more or eat more or or to withdraw from social interactions, to continue to not find any pleasure in life and the mood kind of spirals. And of course, we have to worry, I think, a little bit more around depression in terms of suicidal um, ideation and, and suicidal behavior. So we do worry about those things and we worry about both the uh, duration of symptoms, the intensity of symptoms, and and um, and the behaviors that follow from that. So both conditions, depression, anxiety, and they do occur often together. 
Uh, we usually try to find out what's bothering people the most. And usually anxiety has a more immediate type feel to it. Um, so, so, but, but there are a lot of ways to break out of these things, right? They don't have to be so intractable. And I think before people come to see a psychologist, a psychiatrist, often I think they've lost a little hope. Things that they did before to get through depression, anxiety, or depressive or anxiety symptoms don't work. And so they often come in a little, a little dejected, like, man, I'm just not tough enough. And I think coaches would demonstrate that as well. Right. Um, So uh, can you go a little bit deeper into treatment of anxiety? Sure. So we think about, uh, we think about anxiety as basically having three mass, three significant elements, right? So there's a physiology of anxiety, which feels like your body's running away from you, right? You can, you can experience it as palpitations or shortness of breath or sweating. Um, and, and it can feel very much like a physical disease state, right? And it can manifest in either panic symptoms or worry symptoms or even some traumatic symptoms. But, but particularly the physiology of anxiety really freaks people out because it can mimic some of the cardiovascular type symptoms that everybody knows to sort of watch out for. And it leads to kind of a spiraling of symptoms that leads to, to sleep, you know, insomnia. Um, and so that physiology of anxiety is part one. So we often uh, need to get people involved in exercise and try to burn off some of that physiology, or we could use medicines. Um, Second thing we do around the second component of anxiety we pay attention to is the cognitive or psychological. So what are people saying to themselves? So we look at self-talk and how anxiety is like, oh, my gosh, there's that chest pain. I'm going to die. And how self-talk magnifies the physiologic response. And so you have sort of a multiplicative effect by the way in which you're thinking about anxiety. And then the third is, is behavioral, which is um, people trying to avoid what they're afraid of. Uh, so you see that in phobias, you see that in trauma where people try to say, I just can't face that. I just got to pull, I got to unplug. I just can't face what you're asking me to face. And so it's a behavioral avoidance. So we look at the physiology, the psychology and the actions or behaviors to try to get at that. So each of those would, we would target. So for physiology, we would keep, we would start with some deep breathing or progressive muscle relaxation. For psychology, we'd start talking about replacing or addressing some of the anxious thoughts. And then for the actions, we get people going again. We got to get them out of their shell. We got to get them out of their house. We got to get them out of the the phobic behavioral pattern so that they will experience it. In short, you're not going to get better sitting in your house for much of anything. So psychology has become very focused on, on exercise and behavioral activation, just getting people out. Um, so those are things we would start on right away for anxiety. Is it anxiety that's directly related to certain vices or what causes that behavior? Well, I think a lot of vices are a form of distraction, which is another form of avoidance, right? So alcohol does in fact, distract you from your feelings for a little while. Um, other drugs do as well. So that's an example people carousing, right? Um, engaging in, in high-risk behaviors, driving fast, right? So we occasionally hear about NFL players who are driving 150 miles per hour, and you're like, well, why would you do that? You're a million-dollar athlete. 
well, the part of it is the distraction, right? And perceived invulnerability. And, and so there are a lot of those components. Things that distract us can, particularly if we're trying to avoid a negative mood state, um, that helps uh, people, at least in the short run. I think it gets to something else too, Jeff, which is coaches have a high tolerance for negative emotions. They experience big games and big losses and big opportunities and recruiting losses. And, and, um, and they experience those kind of in isolation um, because, you know, this, they can't call into the talk show and complain about the game. And they're just as frustrated, if anything. They're more invested in the outcome than, than, than fans and, and faculty and alumni. So I, I think that um, these are challenges for, for, for coaches. And, um, you know, I worry about that. Yeah. Well, you also have the anonymous message board as well. No question. I, I can't believe what's said on those boards. I, I hope yeah. our I hope our players stay away from it because it's ruthless. I mean, uh, I guess coaches are getting paid. At least the head coach is getting well paid. But boy, these uh, like you said, I mean, eighteen to twenty-two year old young men trying to do their best, or 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 female athletes. Although the message boards weren't always quite as hot for them, um, but certainly we're talking about American football. Boy, it's it's tough out there. Yeah, I've read some incredible things about myself on there, actually. So How about that, yeah. I mean, it's a little <laughs> bit like doctors' reviews, right? We have the same thing with doctors' reviews, where people, you know, come in and, and rate their doctor, which I don't I guess that's allowed, but but there's often two sides to the story, as you guess. Yeah, I've got some strong opinions about uh, people who anonymously uh, take shots at other people. You know, that's yeah. But I'll. Uh, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure it does anybody much good. Um, right. I guess maybe there's a temporary um, relief of of anger when you know, that person caused me to feel bad Saturday afternoon. Well, you know, it's probably not worth uh, impugning yourself and others. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, uh, I think I mentioned this to you about uh, five weeks ago, I enrolled in a... Uh, uh, health coach Institute to be a health and life coach. Yeah. So uh, this has been a real blessing for me to, to, uh, to go into retirement when I did, because you know, I'm kind of going a whole different direction now with not only taking care of myself, but wanting to help some other people as well with some of these things I actually never thought much about before. Uh, you know, I had a, I think I had a melanoma and I went through that and I had a hip replaced and, you know, I was, having a hard time the last year or two even running uh, with my hips. So, uh, and then you have inflammation as a result of that. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you're going to get, you get these messages might be time to do something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it prompts me to, to uh, tell your uh, audience about the best study we have on football players long-term is a study that looked at 2000, uh, 864 former NFL players. It was published in the British Medical Journal in 2022. What's interesting about it is that they compared the sample of former football players to other large American samples that we have, well-known studies. And it did show that arthritis and dementia were at higher, occurred in higher rates in this uh, 27 to, I think it was 60-year-old sample. 
Yeah. And that's interesting, right? Because that means, of course, that our the injuries that we compile during football, in your case, maybe your hips, maybe not, but but the injuries associated with both impact to the head as well as to musculoskeletal injuries, that they do persist. And you know that one of the ways that at least arthritis and injuries are best treated are often NSAIDs. Uh, and non-steroidal arthritis uh, <laughs> drugs are known to have other kinds of effects. Now we swap out those side effects for the re relief so we can get some rest or whatever, but, but there's a lot more going on here than just simply coaches are under stress. They're also former players, the vast majority of them. And so they would fall as um, evidence of the sample that I just reported on. So, and, and particularly non-linemen, um, right? Linemen represented a bigger part of the sample because there's more of them on the field and there's more linemen. And they, in fact, had even greater risk of these things. So so it's it's not the case that that coaches are simply dropped out of the sky. They're former football players. And so their health and their well-being cannot be presumed. Um, these are the changes in you, your wisdom, if you will, about what matters in life or being healthier and I mean, these are the things that go along. I mean, I know you're a former player um, and and we love the sport. You know, it's hard to hard to think of a sport that teaches more lessons about teams and and about performance and connection and representation and, and guts and grit and all that stuff. But it has a cost. And, you know, like all things, it's a risk and a reward. Yeah, and I'd have to I'd have to say that most of the. Uh... I guess you could say the older coaches that I know have all had at least one concussion. Yes. So, and you know, and that used to be, hell, you just got your bell rung, shake yeah. it off. Uh, you'll be all right. You know, and that's, uh, I, I know I've had at least two, maybe three. <laughs> same, same. And I mean, those are now recognized as grade one and grade two concussions, right? Uh, yeah. Back then we just didn't know. And our helmets weren't as good. But I can also tell you the strength of impact that I see in football today is not like what I remember. I mean, every tackle is a punishing tackle uh, in the vast majority of cases I see now in major college football. Whereas back when I played, we just try to get people on the ground. Yeah. Uh, you know, it looks to me like, you know, there's a technique. People are going after the ball and they're they're making more complete contact. I think they have better equipment. They're stronger, faster, all that stuff. But it's, so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting day. Yeah, definitely more explosive, no doubt about it. Uh, so I, I want to kind of get in, go back to stress for a second here and just talk about, uh, you know, how does stress cause the decline of physical health? Yeah. Uh, well, as I mentioned, you know, there is some physiology to stress. We know that stress increases the um, inflammatory states, and inflammatory states are really the rage in medicine right now. We're trying to understand how inflammatory states change um, joint health, how they change cardiovascular health. I mean, it is the rage, but we're not quite sure how all of the pieces go together yet. So the main way that stress can affect us physiologically is what we think is through an inflammatory pathway. Now, the, pro the problem with stress is that, yeah, it's okay in the short run, but, but when you talk about a coach or a player that's had a 30, 40 year career, I mean, these are chronic stress. I mean, you know, think about Nick Saban, all these years he's coached, and, and you say, well, that's 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 a pretty good grind. Now, he's also become expert probably at managing some of those stresses, but 
nonetheless, the chronicity of stress is really where we look for physiologic change. And it's probably via cytokines and inflammatory processes. Of course, the more simple way to talk about this, and I'll say it again and again, the simplest way to talk about how stress affects us is that we don't take good care of ourselves. We simply don't eat, exercise, sleep, and care for ourselves in the same way under high levels of stress. That's a very obvious, manifest, easy way to see. I mean, it's much harder to be to having blood draws to prove something. It's much easier to say, hey, you know, during season, uh, how often does the head coach get out and and work out well i don't know but it's probably less and because the demands of time are so much higher um, if, if nothing else and when we if we start losing you know the answer that every coach starts with when they start losing is well i gotta watch more film i gotta get more prepared i gotta do more 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 you know I, i'm just amazed and I, i'm amazed at that at that response by so many coaches. In fact, the only coach I can really think of that kind of blew things off a lot was Spurrier, right? So Spurrier was known for letting his assistants go home and have dinner. He was known for trying to take time on a on a weekend uh, to chill. And that's just funny to me because he was very successful. But the, it's obvious across the NFL and, and major college that more, more, more is the is the main call not balance, balance, balance. Yeah, Steve Logan was also that way. He, it was like, if you can't get this work done in a certain amount of time, you're not smart enough to work for me. So, you know, I want you to go home and spend time with your family. And that was big for him. Yeah, I, I love that mentality. And I think there's probably more truth to it than not, because you can never prove more work produce more wins. So you, so that is a, as a single inalienable fact is just not so but but the, but the 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 culture of college the culture of coaching is is more 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 and and i'm just not sure that i mean in this day of analytics uh i think that analytics can probably jump us ahead of the same film for the 15th time right well let's talk a little bit about uh the aging coach and uh, a little bit about the heart as far as preventative health. You know, I've got a little book here. You may be familiar with this guy, Caldwell B. Esselstyn, mm -hmm. who claims that you can reverse heart disease. And his rules are you can't eat anything with a mother or a face. You cannot eat dairy products. You cannot consume oil of any kind. Uh, not a drop. Uh, the Mediterranean diet, basically, he looks at as being moderate, and moderate is a killer. Generally, you cannot eat nuts or avocados. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's pretty extreme, but I really think he's talking about people who have had possibly already had a heart attack? Well, we take a little bit different approach. First off, the evidence for reversing heart disease, this, there is some. Dean Ornish is best known for this concept of reversing heart disease, data that's from the 1990s. Today, we think about 
recommending things we think people can actually do and maintain. Um, there's just too many crash diets. There's just too many crash exercisers. There's just too many crash drinkers, too many crash, crash, crash. And I, and I think what we look for is a, a kinder, gentler, longer term approach on most behaviors. I mean, I would rather see somebody walk 30 minutes, five days a week for the next 20 years than see them become, I don't know, some sort of marathoner for a, a year and then slack off forever that this yeah. is a long game it's a long game health health and 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 behavioral health in particular is a long game and it's not always so uh um attention getting right getting up and walking in the morning is not exactly wild fun on the other hand it's probably one of the best things we if you had to pick one thing that'd be one thing to really focus on it's just simply getting walking in another one would be probably minimizing alcohol use. Another one would be certainly managing your weight and sugars. So, you know, while I appreciate that in an ideal world with unlimited resources, you know, being able to avoid all of those things and walk the perfect line, great. But most of us don't have that. That The data just doesn't support people changing wildly and staying changed. The data suggests that people will go through, many people will buy a Peloton and sign up but after a short period of time, they're just paying Peloton. And uh, I think that that, so it's not that I want to be a party pooper about that or give boring, boring news, but, but we want to give news that is evidence-based and sustainable. And we just don't see that with a lot of these approaches. Right. Well, I mean, uh, in my class, of course, we talk about the magic plate, which is just <laughs> just a simple, well-balanced diet three times yeah. a day, eating up to only uh, until you're 80% full, uh, making sure you have enough protein where you're going to balance the absorption of the sugars, yeah. uh, making sure that you're drinking half your body weight in ounces per day, uh, some simple things like that, but uh, choosing healthy fats, uh, a lot of common sense stuff as well. And uh, I think we're trying to work up to 10,000 steps a day. That's a lot of steps. Right. Good news is uh, 7,500. It looks like a, a great target. And for people who are more debilitated, it looks like 3,700 steps provide some health, which is what I cited earlier. Just getting out walking some helps. So the most recent data within the last month or two suggests even 3,700 steps a day has health benefits. Again, not super amazing uh, by any means, but hey, every little bit counts. By the way, I forgot to mention, of course, no, no smoking. Smoking's a just a, a non-starter. That's the obvious number one cut. But I, I assume that if we're talking about empowerment, most yeah. of us have, um, you know, given up tobacco. It just doesn't tobacco just doesn't play for health. Right. What do you think of this vaping? I'm worried about it. I'm worried very much about it. Lungs are uh, lungs are very precious. Uh, I'm worried about it. I don't quite know what to make of it yet. I mean, I, we don't believe it's helpful. That's for sure. The question is, is there any sort of step down approach from tobacco to vaping to ultimately something else? Uh, we are interested in that. We have some, uh, I'm working together with a public health uh, professor to design some studies looking at, at um, 
essentially vape the device that has essential oils in it as a way to mimic the vape process without uh, monoxide, without the toxic uh, elements that go along with it. So we're worried about all that stuff. Um, Including, I, I'm not sure where it goes. And uh, what about marijuana smoke? Well, we don't have great data about marijuana. I mean, we don't, smoke's just not good for your lungs, period. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to throw the book at marijuana, but I, I, so far the pharmacologic studies I've looked at, it, it's got a lot of placebo to it in addition to some active ingredients and especially all the ways that it's been modified in its growth. That Again, it's another one of these, hey, without clinical trials as professors, we're not very comfortable commenting on this stuff. We, we really rely on scientific uh, data for these things. So, yeah, but of course, these questions come up all the time. And um, yeah. as more states legalize it, we're going to be dealing with it even more. Yeah. And there's people still swearing up and down right now that it causes brain cell damage. So, yeah, I don't know what that research is, but. Well, but if you look at, if you look at the claims that people make about, about marijuana, it, it, it cures so many things that we don't have any pharmacologic agents that can work all those different ways. I mean, drugs yeah. don't do that, suggesting that there is some expectancy effects. It's like, oh, when I take this, I feel like this. And they, in fact, expect to feel that way and do feel that way. So expectancy effects are part of a part of any uh, chemical agent. You expect to feel calmer when you drink when you drink a beer or you expect to. Yeah to to feel certain ways when you take any medicines those are known um expectancy some people call them placebo effects but they're really expectancy effects uh how about uh blood pressure well i mean that's if you think about the the common pathway of disease hypertension high blood pressure is the common pathway it's the one we worry most about it's also the one that doesn't have as much intuitive appeal to people I don't feel bad. Why are you giving me these medicines that make me tired? Because we know that the process of high blood pressure makes the organs work harder and develops the, the conditions by which uh, heart disease and other vascular related problems like stroke can manifest themselves. So we do worry about blood pressure because it's such a common pathway. It's not the only way to get heart disease, but it sure is there enough. It's a it's the usual suspect. And, and as you might guess, not everybody has equal access to health care and to blood pressure care. So people with health care resources are more likely to get the kinds of problems because the condition is symptomless. And right. so they wander around with high blood pressure, never get care until it shows up as a as a as a disease. And that that making the work, the heart work harder the process of managing blood pressure, I mean, it, it is worrisome and it's, it's sort of an unfair disease because it, it affects people um, differently based on health disparities and inequalities. Now, with atherosclerosis, uh, can plaque be stabilized? Can plaque be reversed? What, uh, what can be done? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the main thing is we like this idea that it can be stabilized and we have some older data that definitely says that and the use of statins in particular seem to really help stabilize plaques. That is the goal of statins and some of the newer drugs we have that are not as commonly used, but we do have ways of doing that. So there is good evidence that we're, we're making progress on this today's optimal medical therapy with a 
multi-target regimen of medications, yes, it does look like we can really help people's hearts function more at ease. We can reduce blood pressure. We can stabilize some plaques. Now, nothing's perfect, right? Uh, but but we, I think there is good news in that space, and we're going to continue to see more good news. Um, obviously, the story about Ozempic and, and the group of drugs called GLP-1 inhibitors, I mean, this is quite interesting, right? We may help a lot of people and maybe even these linemen and these coaches the, that we've talked about that maybe using some of these medications that have the side effect of weight loss, maybe that's going to be the a, a semi-magic bullet in terms of helping our football, our historical football players get healthier or in the future. So Again, medicines have a real place here. Uh, nobody likes polypharmacy. Nobody likes to take a big handful of pills, but but it's in a pretty efficient way of getting at some of these risks. Yeah, with statins, you hear about muscle cramping and muscle weakness. And then, of course, probably uh, the thing that's not very appealing is some uh, native issues with mitochondria as a result of statins. So, you know, uh, is, yeah, is, I mean, statins. We, we do have some good at news about statins. I mean, in studies that have tried to manipulate the effect, there's a study called the Samson trial that actually looked at how expectancy effects, telling somebody, hey, if you take this medicine, you might get some muscle cramping. Well, they're more likely to get it if you tell them that. Yeah. And so the, what's going on here, right? Again, expectancy. So we think the balance of benefit of statins as much as we know right now, the balance of benefit is quite extensive. Knowing that, yeah, I mean, myalgia, that's, you know, muscle pain, muscle stiffness, myalgia does seem to occur in as many as 10% of people. But remember, the people who take statins are also highly subjective. Sub, they're very likely to have arthritis. So yeah. it's tough. I mean, is that making it worse? Is that, wasn't, wasn't it already there? These are tough, complicated issues that, you know, everyone's personal physician needs time to talk with and then support in terms of how, how to, you know, make a decision about whether the statin's right for you and, and for, for your health. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on who you talk to in relationship to uh, LDL. Yeah. Uh, you know, how crucial is it for you to get your LDL way down? And... Uh, a lot of people agree with that. My doctor agrees with it wholeheartedly. She'd like to see your LDL maybe down to like 70 or something. And uh, so, you know, how do you feel about LDL, you know, as a marker and how extreme, I mean, how, how far do you need to go before you, you're going to be feeling healthy or considered to be healthy with that marker? Well, I mean, my role is so often to simply support people trying to make a decision and go with it, right, and, and facilitate yeah. that. The data does continue to come in from large clinical trials about, about cholesterol and, and LDL. And I mean, there is evidence that driving it lower and lower seems to be a desirable direction. But again, it's very idiosyncratic, very individual about which decisions to go with. But yes, there is evidence that driving it lower and lower as as whatever that means, right? We're not even sure what that means, except right. you know, push the number down. Okay, but what other consequences are there, right? With each action, there is a reaction. 
Um, but lowering LDL remains pretty good evidence that that makes sense for many people. Yeah, going, going plant-based, for instance, for someone like me, who's uh, an older retired coach who still likes to lift weights, where, you know, where am I going to get my protein? Uh, where am I going to get enough protein that I need to recover from a training bout? That's and, right. Uh, just enough to, for basic survival because protein is so important to many of your bodily functions. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so that's another thing that I would mention, but. Uh, yeah. I mean, we're always, I mean, you, everybody with a foot in academia and academic medicine is going to say moderation every time. Cause we think yeah. we're safe with that. Um, so, so when you get people out on the extremes, whether they're cyclists or, weightlifters or people out on the extremes or people who do nothing sit on the couch all the time these extremes it can be a little bit more difficult because and we're trying to keep people moderated if you will across multiple behaviors right again it's not as it's not as much of a headline right like oh man you know hang upside down and eat a burger you know these might be more exciting headlines but moderation and reasonableness remains part of our acumen we don't want to we don't want to take too many of these crazy rides on these dietary hikes we've been fooled too many times yeah just too many times we really try to talk about reasonable moderation Um, yeah i think the american heart association promotes the uh, mediterranean diet if i'm not mistaken right and the dash diet which is a, a very similar kind of um, healthy based diet, dietary plan. Again, the research in diet is very suspect. We really have a hard time drawing firm conclusions from dietary research. It's just a very difficult, uncontrolled, um, set of experiments. We end up with these big surveys and people recalling what they ate. And and that's just not good enough science. I mean, if we could, if people were like lab rats and we could control their diet and control their life for X number of days, maybe, but boy, that would be an unethical study, right? So, so these are tougher issues. I, I didn't mean to be elusive. I just don't think you can draw a lot from, from these and I'm, and we're just really cautious about them. Yeah. And then probably the final thing I want to ask you about as far as uh, being related to male issues would be testosterone levels as you age mm-hmm. and uh, how that impacts pretty much everything that, you know, yeah. uh, that has been important to uh, someone who's trying to gain strength or sure. uh, trying to maintain uh, virility or whatever. So, you know, what, what do you, what do you have to say about testosterone? Well, again, I'm a little bit cautious. I mean, we do know that low testosterone is associated with things that look a lot like depression. Um, we do know that testosterone changes across the lifespan. It certainly changes across middle and older age. Uh, we're also pretty cautious about it. I mean, we have limited data. There is some study that seems like, okay, it's not, we don't think it's dangerous per se, but every situation is different. I certainly have patients who do take testosterone. Again, I, 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 I kind of, I'm kind of uncomfortable with looking for solutions outside ourselves I'm much more comfortable with looking at solutions like um, exercise and and um, other kinds of well-being strategies rather than just chasing pharmacologic solutions. Although there are cases where that's needed, 
Uh, again, we have easy lab tests for that. So, so there can be conversations between your doctor and you about well, where, how do I look in terms of testosterone? But I, I mean, I got to tell you, I would be cautious about it. I, I, I don't know that, I don't know that we need to change the pharmacy of some of our hormones quite as much as it's tempting to do. Again, we're cautious, we're conservative, because remember, we don't want to do any harm. We want to make sure that that we give advice that's that's stepwise, um, that is sustainable, and that is evidence-based, that we have good empirical evidence about the possible avenues of, of action. Yeah, and I think heavier, not extremely heavier, but heavier multi-joint movements help to promote growth hormone and, and promote t- t- testosterone naturally. So, you know, you, you start taking, you know, injections of testosterone, your body shuts down, making it naturally. So, you know, there's a lot of things to consider there. And that is, that's a, I mean, that is a known concept. We, we're not positive about that, but that's a reasonable, plausible response that supplementation just simply reduces production. Um, we're not sure about any of those things, but I think those are the things we're talking uh, talking about in the research literature. And these age-defined gurus now are prom- uh, promoting peptides. Uh, I don't know, you know, so I... Yeah, I don't have a lot of comments on those. I mean, yeah. again, we look for the best evidence. Yeah. Gurus, I like gurus fine, but um, I don't think they can represent the literature and the research and the scientific basis for what we do enough. That's why we're cautious and careful. Yeah. A lot of money being made out there on peptides right now. So, yeah. So what? I, uh, let's go back and talk about you a little bit. Uh, let's go back and tell me about uh, your background, how you got to the university of Florida, where you grew up. Um, yeah. How you, how you got into uh, basically in your education, what you gravitated toward. Yeah, I, so I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and uh, I was I was a pretty good high school football player and hurdler. Um, a lot of small schools talk with me, but I grew up in Florida. All I knew was Chris Collinsworth and the Florida Gators. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I said to myself, look, if I make one catch for the Florida Gators, it'd be better than if I led the Ivy League and wide receiver. What what good? So you're the best in the Ivy League. Nobody in Orlando would even know it. So I wanted to go to the University of Florida, no matter what. I got to I got to Florida and um, had multiple injuries. Uh, you know, the first the first fall I got mono, so I missed most of the season because of a protection of the spleen, and then I. I blew out a shoulder, a dislocated shoulder that I had hurt in high school. And then I hurt the other one. And then I blew out my knee and had an ACL repair. So I never did make that one catch, unfortunately. It took me three years of rehab. Uh, but but it did do this for me. You know, I knew that uh, getting, I knew it was hard to get better. And at the University of Florida, I got a chance to be around and try to look at why do people get better? How do people recover from injuries? And I actually got a chance to be around that. And it led to my interest ultimately in psychology and ultimately in the University of Florida, which is another one of the schools like East Carolina that has the psychology of disease. So despite the fact that I had these injuries, they did, in fact, lead me right down the path that I wound up on. The other thing is that my time in athletics, back then we had athletic dorms. 
And so I stayed on as an RA in the athletic dorm for uh, three of my years of graduate school. So, you know, I was the guy chasing the girls out of the dorm at two o'clock in the morning. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't great work, but, but, you know, people understood that was the rules at the time and it was, you know, a different time. And, uh, so that helped me a lot. So at the university of Florida, my, my uh, work was around heart transplant, um, because I got interested in how people get better. And I thought what bigger, badder, meaner, tougher disease than, than needing a heart transplant. You either going to, you either going to live or die based on an operation. And uh, so I got interested in that and, and had a great opportunity to study there. And, and that became my interest in, in cardiology and, and interested in other kinds of technologies beyond transplant, because uh, here we are almost 30 years later, and we still transplant almost the exact number of hearts we transplanted 30 years ago. Mm. We just have not made much progress in organ yeah. donation. And so fortunately, I did diversify because, you know, there's only... There's only so many hearts being transplanted. And so I got interested in, in all the other things that we do in cardiology. And that's exploded with many different technologies. And that's how I got here, really focused on the recovery of disease. Um, I came to East Carolina after 12 years on the faculty at the University of Florida. I was a tenured professor there at Florida. So I went there when I was 18 to catch passes. And I left when I was 39 to come to some scrappy place <laughs> called East Carolina. The only thing I knew about East Carolina was I saw him. I saw them play Florida once and Florida State once, and I thought, I don't know who runs that team, but that's one scrappy bunch. And that's true. They were. I think it was forty-seven to forty-six at, at in Tallahassee, and um, and they came and they came to Gainesville and scrapped pretty well as well. So I knew about this. I knew about the teams. I knew about the Miami wins, frankly, because uh, I always pay attention to whoever beats somebody that I don't like either. So East Carolina had put up a couple of big wins against Miami. So I knew about that. And I was recruited here in 2007 uh, when they started a new PhD program in, in clinical health psychology and the Heart Institute was being built. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the leaders of the Heart Institute recognized, hey, maybe this guy could help us. And and uh, since then, it's just been um, life changing for myself, my family to come here, raise my children here in Greenville Uh both of them, both my sons left and went to the University of Florida for college. Uh, both have graduated and done well, but uh, they fondly appreciate Greenville as a place to grow up and, and East Carolina. I think they secretly are bigger East Carolina fans than Florida fans uh, because this is home. And, um, you know, it's a special place for many reasons. East Carolina is a, a place that does exactly what I said. It's a scrappy place that does a lot with a little that magnifies the best of what it has. It's interpersonal. It cares about the people here. I mean, I, I, I know you could be a lot of places and have been a lot of places. This is a, it's a pretty neat place. Absolutely. Uh, well, I had a great 18 years there and you know, that's why I still live in this town and I, my kids grew up here. So I've got a house down at Emerald House, so this is just kind of our, this is our place. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, hats off to it. We, yeah. it's up to all of us to make this place special, and and I think all of us try. Uh, this is a much more personal uh, place. You know, universities can't love you back, but yeah. a lot of people love this university. Right. Well, Henry Van Sant, uh, someone who I. Uh, respected very deeply, uh, told me one time, you know, we are 
just stewards of this place. It's going to be here a lot longer than we are. So, <laughs> well, you gave a lot to this place, that's for sure. So, yeah, so I'll, I'll take that as as great advice. No doubt. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, uh, I can't wait till you speak somewhere else because I'm going to try to get wherever I can to listen to you because uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for your knowledge. So thank you very much for your time. Appreciate and, you, uh, Jeff. Great, great work and contribution to East Carolina as well. And love being here. Help, I, hope, I hope I can come back. Invite me back. I'll come back and talk about something else. Hey, I'll definitely do it. Well, this is Jeff Connor signing off for Absolute Empowerment. We'll see you next week and God bless. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on the Sports Objective. Join us every Monday night for a new edition of the show. Listen to the show pretty much everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to follow us on social media at the Sports OBJ on Twitter and TikTok, at the Sports Objective on Instagram. Like and follow our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. As always, we appreciate you listening to the show. And go Pirates! Thanks, Jeff. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.